the British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Special episode, we got Tim Kozak from the Veterans Project back on. Tim, what's up, brother? What's up, man? It's good to be on. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me. It's been a little while. Uh, I think it was since uh, Jared Bullock and uh, and the other guy and the other Green Beret. What was his name again? I'm, try- I'm trying to remember now. I sound, I sound I, awful. I, I knew his name before you asked it. <laughs> he threw me off once you asked it. Um, no, but it was it was that was a really great podcast and super enjoyable. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a little bit, man. So it's good to be back on. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And and we have a, a special guest with us uh, from the UK, uh, British Army veteran Durant Jones. How's it going, brother? What's up, guys? Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Alrighty. So, uh, Tim covered you on the project, uh, you know, so you guys obviously, you know, have been well acquainted as Tim's project. He dives into the details of the people that he's covering and, um, you know, most of the audience knows Tim. It's, it's been a while. So, you know, any new listeners in the past couple of months probably aren't familiar, but, uh, Tim, can you just break down the veterans project very quickly before we get into uh get the story? Oh man, you asked me to do something very quickly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know you had to say that because otherwise it would have been like an hour. <laughs> um, yeah, so the the Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay uh, built into black and white images, and I and I I follow these veterans around. And basically, my focus is not so much the combat side of things, but the reintegration and really diving into the reintegrative aspects of these guys and what they're facing, some of the challenges they're facing and overcoming. So I follow them around for a day, two days, uh, if you're Rudy Reyes for like a week, because (laughs) it takes like a week to capture that guy. Um, but you know, just like that process of following them around and kind of understanding their life and getting to know them. Um, it's a very authentic process where I'm getting to know a brother. I myself being a veteran, uh, brother or sister and following them around showing what their life is like and building it into a blog 
Um, and that, and that's coupled with their questions. Um, I asked some questions about reintegration and combat, and then I post those on a day-to-day basis on the Instagram, a quote with a photo. And, uh, that basically lasts like three weeks to a month for each veteran. So I was privileged enough to let get, have Gez follow me around in, um, in San Clemente. And, uh, we had just an awful time. So (laughs) (laughs) hanging out on the beach and stuff. So. Um, you know, it, it was it was another wonderful project, and uh, Gez has gone through some uh, incredible things and uh, lived to tell about it. So uh, it's great to have him on the show. Very thankful. As well. Yeah. So, so Gez, you know, before we got on, you said something that thought was interesting that you're not a believer in like sugarcoating things, and um, you know, you're very honest about your experiences. Which yeah, it's interesting because not everyone's like that. You know, a a lot of people are the complete opposite. You know, yeah, I'd like to caveat that as well by saying, like, you know, even though there are tough times, I I also don't believe in over exaggerating the problems of patient face and making it that we are victims or anything like that. So I just kind of like, you know, but I I definitely think you know there's. there's amazing things to come out of service and there's not some great things. Um, and, and that's different, you know, from person to person. I can only speak to my own experience and what I've seen, you know, with veterans who are kind of from my, 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 my group, you know, my unit. Um, you know, that's, that's uh, the only thing I can speak to. Um, but I, I, I just think that, <clears throat> you know, that honesty is the best, you know, honesty is the best policy. And um, I think that, you know, if the, the whole kind of the stiff upper lip, culture which i think is absolutely necessary for soldier while we're serving can be our biggest enemy afterwards um you know and it's you know it's from the culture we come from it's not very easy to you know be like oh actually i do have a you know i do have some god uh, hates to say it, emotions and um you know it's it's um something that i think as a community we're getting better at talking about better expressing and um you know i think um you know, move, move, moving forwards, I think the the more people we can get, um, you know, talking and being 100% honest and frank about their experiences, then, you know, that might just help one guy who doesn't end up taking his own life or something because, you know, he felt like he was actually, maybe he was a bit understood a little bit better or it was okay for him to talk about it and stuff. So I think that's really important. Yeah. yeah. I think, Gez, and I think something that you said just right there was very refreshing. And I think you actually summarized the Veterans Project better than I did. So congratulations on that. Well, okay. <laughs> um, no, that's another beer then. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I think it's kind of a, it's a bridge builder, right? Like in order for civilians to better understand us, there has to be some level of authenticity um, in, in the way we talk. And, and you know, there there's a light. There's so many lights at, at the end of the tunnel for a lot of these guys. You know, sure. I, I, tr- I try to make people understand this, but... It, not all the stories are like these, you know, legendary victories. You know, I have right. a lot of guys I've covered that have had some really rough times. But I think Gez was very refreshing because of his authenticity and the fact that he is successful now, but he still has his really hard times. You know, he still has those rough times. So that's that's uh, very it was very, uh, very awesome to hear him speak on some of those things because you get so used to, you know, either too sugar-coated, right, which which can happen uh, in, in our society and in media, or just, you know, blatantly very brunt to the point of almost being exaggerated. So it was just very real and very raw, and that's what I appreciated uh, the most about my time with Gez. 
Real, real and raw. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> real and raw. Both. <laughs> you got to be careful with this word usage around military guys, man. Very careful. <laughs> yeah, pounce on that. Yeah. I, I, I think it's um, you know, almost a misconception, you know, like you said, where people kind of think everything is just like a great victory and stuff like that. I think one of the, like one of the, um, kind of definitions of strength is to be able to endure, uh, you know, whatever life kind of throws at you. And it's, you know, as you go through life, you start to realize that some people realize it sooner than others as people are in different situations in life. But, uh, if you, if you didn't realize it when you were younger, you'll definitely realize it when you're an adult that, you know, life isn't always easy, you know? And, um, I think just one of the things that, one of the kind of components of, of being strong is to be able to endure whatever you're, you're going through. And I think that's something that specifically, you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines serving in wartime, that's something that you're, you're definitely going to come across at some point, uh, kind of being being in a, a sucky situation and, and having a, to deal with it. Uh, you know, the only way is, you know, being strong. Yeah, man, for sure. And, and those are the situations that, um, you know, kind of cheesy as it sounds, those are the situations that do end up making you a better person yeah. and do end up, you know, they, they do really kind of shape your character. Um, you know, for every like for every bad day, there's going to be somewhere down the line that bad day is going to come back to you in a good way when you're going to be in a you know, stronger position to, you know, to deal with things. You know, like as, 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 as soldiers and, you know, service people, we... Um, you know, we, we, we want to be in a position to help other people and say that's your family. You know, you just, uh, the more shit you go through when you're, when you're young and you're in the service, the better position you're going to be to deal with bad days. That, because no, no, no one's going to go through life without any fucking bad days. You know, Civil, civilian or military, we're going to have shit days. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's just, it's, a, it's just about, it's about acknowledging the fact that you can have a shit day. And then, you know, like you see, just using that to build character rather than to break it down. Right. I think, uh, and, and one thing that I like that you said there, Gaz, was, you know, I think as soldiers and Marines and, you know, one of the cool things about it is maybe not cool, but one of the, one of the heroic, almost heroic things about it is when you sign up, you kind of choose to have bad days, right? <laughs> like For sure. Like, and, and, oh, yeah. and it's kind of fucked up to say it, but the truth is as well, you want bad days in a way, because yeah. if you don't have like, like. Uh, it's uh, you know you obviously we never want our own fucking guys to get hurt or something like that but i don't i was speaking as an infantry soldier like i wanted to i wanted to be in bad positions where it looked fucking terrible you know like, where, where it looked like you were you were fucked because you want to put your back against the wall and be in those positions and to, right. to, to face those tests now you don't, you'd never wish you know an injury or anything like that on your own guys um but at the same time you have to acknowledge as a soldier that look I want to fucking be in a fight. You know, I, I, I want to come, I want to come through this. This is what I want. And, and if that happens, there could be, you know, there, there's going to be some downside to that. You know that. Um, and I don't think it's something that if you, if you sit down and you, you know, you, you really think it through, you'd be like, well, actually maybe I don't want this, but you know, it's something in the, I don't know, the DNA of a soldier, infantry soldiers that we want that, you know, we want to be in that fight. Um, and we have to acknowledge that that is going to come with bad days. Right. What um? So, guys, let let's uh, talk your background a little bit. Uh, you served for how long in the uh, British military? 
Um, so including the reserves, I did uh, just shy of 12 years. So I joined the uh, the Army Reserves when I was um, 17. And when I was at, um, when I was in, like what would be equivalent to like a senior year of high school. And then um, uh, I, w- I went on to uh, college after that. Uh, when I when I joined, it was it was 2000. So the the thinking was that I would go to college, um, get my degree, and then go on to um, uh, go on to the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, where the Army trains its officers. Uh, and my intention was to do a full a full a um, a full career as an officer, you know, serve until I was like fifty five years old. And then nine uh, eleven happened, and people started to go on deployments, and I, I just something just like flicked it. It's hard to kind of like. There's been so much war in the last like what sixteen seventeen years now that it's very hard for somebody who's joined the military in the recent years to to kind of picture what it was like before. Yeah. You know, it's, they, they just well, there wasn't really deployments and stuff going on at the path, maybe like a peacekeeping thing here or there. And the only guys you ever heard about really who ever got into any kind of firefight contact um, or anything like that was usually special forces. And usually, it, you know, there wasn't there just wasn't that much fighting going around. When you actually look at how much there's been, you know, since 9-11, it, it is actually quite staggering. You've, you, we, you know, you've, there's so, so much experience, there's so much experience to go around. Um, it just wasn't the case. So when I joined, there was people who had, you know, they'd done an entire career without ever going on what you'd call like a, a real deployment. You know? um, and, you know, when, when I was joining, I was looking like I was going to be in the peacetime army. You really couldn't see where a deployment was going to come from. And then as soon as those appointments opened up, it just totally changed the way that I looked at the army. And it was no longer about building the best career path. It was about going out and getting the best experiences. Um, and for me, that is a, that is at grunt levels and infantry soldier. Right. Yeah. So, I, but I think that kind of you know that kind of thinking where you switch from best career path to you know kind of doing what you feel like is the best uh, experiences, and that and that would equate to uh, you know winning the war or or doing things to be able to get the guys to your left and right home. But I think there's issues, at least in, in the on the U.S. side, um, with people take, taking the career path over doing what's right, you know, kind of thing, and and that kind of throws things off sometimes in like a, a team environment or. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's 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 definitely um, you know there's definitely a couple of different groups of type of people who join the military, and some join for experience, and others join for you know others join for um, you know career path. And I can only speak for myself, and just. I don't know. I don't like the idea of um, the other thing as well is like I was saying, you know, we, we've been at war now for a long time. Uh, in 2003, I was like, shit, if I don't get out to Iraq quickly, this is all going to be done with, you know, ha ha jokes on me. Look at that. Look how that man turned <laughs> off. But, um, but yeah, I was really like, I was like, I'm going to miss this. And I, like, you know, I, I'm going to miss this. And that'll, that'll be my shot soldier and gone out the window. So for me as well, I was like, I didn't want to spend a year and a half in a in training establishment. So I wanted to get out onto the ground in the fastest way possible. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's again, it's 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 very hard to kind of like get back in that mindset of like what, how things were looking in like two thousand three when we first started to go out there. I mean, because you know, at first, um, again, if you weren't really in certain parts of the invasion, you probably you didn't really see that much happening. And then the first couple of tours were pretty benign. And I, I actually thought I'd already missed. I, I thought I'd, I, I thought I'd missed my shot really to go and do the soldiering. Um, but I, I came across a lot of people who, who came into it for the experience rather than, 
career path. And I think that when in times of when you've got conflict going on, you, you're going to attract a lot more people to the military who are going after that, um, you know, quote unquote adventure, you know, rather than, um, you know, my career options are all looking pretty shitty. So I'll join the military. And I think one of the things that was most refreshing about uh, our speech, one thing, yes, I can't, I can't speak, you know, John, I can only speak for what I know in the American army. But, you know, the kind of refreshing thing about being an infantry unit is everybody's there, you know, kind of to, to, to do the damn thing, you know, to get over there in a fight. But one thing that's really refreshing about Gez's viewpoint, and I noticed this, you know, and from his British military perspective, is most of these guys, we forget that the benefit of joining, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Gez, but joining over there, the benefits aren't as great as they are if you're joining them. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So you're really joining out of a place of purity and out of a sense of, you know, getting over there and fighting the war. And obviously there are, you know, different reasons for joining over there as well. But I could say that probably for the most part, you guys are joining because you really want to be a soldier, you really want to be a Marine, and you want to be out on the battlefield doing the damn thing. You know, is that not correct? I I think a lot of guys do join because they need a job. Yeah, um, but there's definitely not the incentives for college and that kind of thing. Um, so um, I think a, a lot of a lot of the guys, it is a case of I need a fucking job. What I'm like, <laughs> you know, mo- you know, if it's um, mo- most of most of the places you'll find your infantry soldiers from are, um, yeah, it's not so much the biggger cities and stuff like that. You know, it's the same as, same as America. I imagine where you have. Guys from smaller towns, guys from not, you know, it's not necessary. It's your options are maybe get a job in the army or you get a job in a factory or something like that. And most people, you know, really would rather choose the factory, but some of us are a little bit nuts and we want to go <laughs> you know, in the infantry instead. And um, there's, there's that to it. And then, yes, there's, yes, there's definitely that other class of people who are like, you know, they, they, there's a very, very proud tradition in the, you know, in British, British units as well. So some, some people join, you know, for family reasons and you can join. It's a little bit different now. And I don't want to say how, um, how it kind of works now with recruitment because I've, you know, been out of the loop for a few years. But it's certainly the way before that you could have, you could be in the same battalion that your grandfather was in and your great grandfather's and, you know, you'll say your great grandfathers were in the First World War, and your grandfather served in that unit in the Second World War, and you know your your father served, in, and you, we have this like it was a very strong regimental family tradition. Um, that's yeah, cool. that's yeah, it's pretty fucking cool if you can say like you, you you know you go in, you're going on deployment to Iraq with the same unit that your like, great granddad went on, you know that he went to France and, and in the trenches with. Wow. Um, that that, that kind of like regimental pride and stuff is, I think that's very. That's a very, I think it's, um, you know, that's almost a tangible thing. And, you know, it's, and it's, 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 there's a lot of strength that comes from having a strong regimental tradition and upholding, you know, upholding the traditions. And we, we're very lucky at that. And, you know, not to have a swipe at America, but my, my whole regiment was older than America, is older than America itself. You know, yeah, but it's, it's, it's almost, it's, su- it's super humbling. When your regiment, like your your regiment, you know, you, you hear like you hear all these, these these First World War, you know, battlefield names, and your you know your regiment was at Waterloo, you know, it's like right. you're like, hey, that is, that's humbling. You're like, fuck yeah, I want to follow. You know, I'm, 
want to keep the tradition going. Or lose old as fuck, man. Yeah, my my <laughs> regiment was uh, yeah. my, my my regiment was the unit. If you've ever seen the movie Zulu, yeah, oh, yeah, uh, with yeah. Royal Strip. So that was my so that was my um, that was, that my was your regiment. What wait, yeah, so what, I'm, what, I'm, what unit what regiment is it? It's, it's, well, now it's called the Royal Welsh. Um, back then, okay. it was, the, and, and so it's they, there's like slight tweakings of the names when they have amalgamations wow. and stuff. But basically, it's the same unit. And you know, with this, we have a, in, in the battalion, we have a, a B company known as Rock's Drift Company after that battle. Um, and then you have um, Rock's Drift Day, where it's like a big everyone gets together and gets fucked up in the mass um, <laughs> in, 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 in the classic military style. Um, and yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome to have, to have that kind of stuff in, because I think, um, you know, having an example to follow in is a very important thing for soldiers. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I know that I, the, the Marines that I stay with when I'm out here in the States, I know that they are fiercely proud of their um, Marine Corps heritage as they fucking right. should be. Cause it's, you know, pretty, you know, pretty ridiculous. And it, I, I, I think that this, this, one thing that we have, and, and you know, America certainly has it, Britain has it, is that we have these traditions going back. And I think it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we the units very ever rarely let the army down. That you, we, when you've got all this history and tradition, and you know, just absolute selfless sacrifice that's come before you, you want to keep, you know, you know, you want to hold the line, and you want to live up to that. Um, and I, I think that that's one of the things that our militaries have um, that, you know, that, that really, you know, re, re, really kind of separates us from a lot of the militaries in the world. Um, and I feel I, I, and what I've noticed in the British Army, I don't know if, how it is out here, but you will get a, you know, like a, um, a restructuring of the army and they'll, you know, they'll bang some units together to cut down on numbers and, you know, that kind of thing, trying to streamline the army. And you lose a lot of that tradition and stuff like that. And yes, it might be a more cost-effective way of doing things, but there's this there's this real kind of like intangible effect that do you have from having these strong regimental systems? And I think that that's starting to get watered down in the British Army. And I think that's a really sad thing uh, because I think it it does have a knock-on effect on um, how, how like if you look at say Vietnam when you're having guys coming into theatre, you know they're coming in. And then on their tour, it's not like a unit's tour. It's them as individuals and stuff. People, you know, it does go away from thinking about your unit as a family and as a, you know, as 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 your home, and starts, you know, becoming more of this is just the place that I come to work. Yeah. So what um, okay. So what did you do in the uh, like? I, I know over here, you know, guys have like specific specialties. Um, you know, for what yeah. So uh, what did you do in the army? Yeah, so again, we don't really have that. So when you join, you just join, say, the infantry. Um, and then you can, you'll get trained up to certain roles. Um, and I think this maybe comes down to that we've always had a smaller military. So I don't think we have the luxury of being able to say, right, this is your one job and that's what you're going to do. Right. Um, so I was part of an armoured uh, an, an armored infantry um, battalion. Um, so we have, we have warrior armored fighting vehicles, which, um, if your listeners are familiar with Bradley's, they're very similar. Um, you know, you've got a troop compartment in the back, you've got a turret with 30 millimeter cannon on there and coaxial machine gun. Uh, so some guys would be trained up in the role of driver, gunner, commander. Other guys are going to be, you know, they're going to be your, your dismount commanders, your riflemen, uh, your machine gunners, 
Uh, and I, I was lucky enough that I managed to um, experience like a, a bunch of different jobs whilst I was in there. So I, I was a infantry, I was a infantry dismount commander for a while. I was a machine gunner, a team, a team, team medic, um, a PTI, physical training instructor. And you, you have all these different hats and you kind of wear them all at once. And you, you just go away. You just, you just go where you need it. You know, it's with, we, we, when we were in Iraq, we were very, un, we were very on demand at the time. So, you know, you might be, you might be in a different position, in a different team, in a different vehicle, doing a different job, you know, one patrol after another, but, you know, we just kind of fit in where you needed. So, you know, Gaz, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, one thing that was really obvious to me and, and that was very unique to me, uh, was kind of your role in uh heading into basra and i wanted to know if you could kind of specifically talk about the complexities of that battle space and because you mean that's the, a, the resupply missions so, yes the, yeah, the resupply yeah. missions yes yeah. yeah could you could you talk a little bit about that because that's a very unique space for americans because we don't hear too much about basra obviously we weren't you know too much there and uh, I know you guys spent a lot of time there, so I, I think that would be really interesting, especially for some of the American listeners to hear to hear about that and some of the complexities. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I went back out to I went to Iraq my second tour in the uh, summer of two thousand and seven. Um, you know, and obviously the country that was a bad time so, to be there, by the way. Yeah, shit show. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> but you know what? As a fucking infantry soldier, that's when you wanted to be there. Um, that was the, that was the, that, that was when you wanted to be there. I, I had to go, I did a, a t- my first one in 2006. Um, and then I had to go, um, I had to, I had to take leave in between. I did back to back tours. So I had to take leave and I missed out on most of July. Um, I know I was kind of like sitting on the sidelines back home, you know, what, and it, like the summer is where it, where it always goes like absolutely crazy out there, especially that year. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be back there. I couldn't, I couldn't wait to get back out there. Um, and when I did, what Tim was referring to is we developed this situation developed where there was um, British held bases inside of Basra city itself. Um, Basra is Iraq's second largest city. I think it's a couple million people in there. So we're talking about a big ass place. And um, on the outside of the city, there was then a logistics base, which was um, basically at the, uh, you know, the international airport. Now, um, by that time, like most other cities in Iraq, things had gone fucking crazy. Uh, the Jay Mahdi were like the main kind of opposition that we were up against, um, which is, uh, you know, Muqtad al-Sadr's group, which I'm sure you, your listeners are familiar with. Right, like that, uh, that fine gentleman. That. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, you, had these, you had these locations who were effectively under siege. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, these units were effectively under siege. And... You know, they were gone with the days of, you know, I, I have friends that went to uh, Basra in 2003, 2004, uh, 2005, and they would, you know, they they walk around in the streets with uh, wearing their berries and like having, you know, a cup of tea with a local and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's not Photoshopped. <laughs> um, and like we, we, we were rolling in there with uh, Challenger main battle tanks, nothing less than like a, co- a company a company strength of warrior vehicles. You know, we had the Apaches up above us. We had Tornado Fast Air above us. And you couldn't go in the city with less than that because you just, you get spanked. And um, the, the problem was you had all these like little isolated areas. Um, 
not really not enough troops to handle it. Like I said, it's a city of two million people. We're operating with a few battle groups of a few hundred. Well, by the time you actually take, you know, the actual boots on the ground that you could put in, and we'd had, you know, we there was very, very few boots on the ground to actually put out there, and it became basically a fight to just hold open these. Um, I think you, you, I think you refer to them as like combat outposts and that, those kind of places, mm-hmm. um, and to keep these places, to keep these places supplied, basically just became a battle in itself. So we would have to, from the outside of the city, on the um, west side of the city, you'd begin punching into the city through. Um, you know, there's, there was only like a few main routes that you could really go from one end to the other on with these logistics convoys, and you'd have to. Um, from from the second you from the second you're reaching the outskirts of the city, you know they've seen they've seen you come in. There's no surprise in them, and they start printing out the pop and drop IDs. So the, the, it was mostly pop drop IDs that we came across because they would they'd wait until they wait until they saw which route we were going to use into the city, and then they'd start going around the cars and motorcycles and you know nipping out and putting out these remote controlled, usually remote controlled IDs um, on, on the sides of the, on, on the sides of the road and. Um, and you know, they, there were other places where they were, um, you know, they, they didn't place the IEDs like ahead of time, but it's, the pop and drops were very popular with them because there was a few different routes that we could use. And they, they, you're not, you're not mistaken an armored convoy when it's rolling out of, um, the airport towards the city, you know, they got plenty of time to get ready. So as soon as you get to the city, you're having to look for and clear IEDs. Um, you, you're obviously in a convoy, so it's very little, um, firepower, you know, you, it's not. A, a, what the way you'd like to deploy an armored battle group is, you know, obviously with a is is um is wide right ra- wide rather than deep, um and we were coming in, we were coming in very you know deep because you've got one vehicle basically and then a whole battle group strung out behind it, um and essentially it would be, um you you know the you begin to get harassed with RPGs you begin to get harassed by small arms fire, um. And you've got to clear your way from one side of a major, you know, a major city. You've got to go, you know, hand over fist, clearing IEDs, get your way, over, get your way over to the other side of the city where uh, where Basra Palace was. Then, as this, it was what they called, they called it an armored sleeve. So, if you imagine the the lead units are pushing through to the city, and as they go, you're dropping off you're dropping off um, vehicles as you go to basically hold this route open. So that the logistics convoy can then do, because a lot of the logistics guys, and you know, like I'll say this as an infantry, infantry guy, we you know we good naturedly give a lot of shit to guys in logistics units and stuff like that. But these guys were like, you know, having to drive this fucking route in, like they didn't have armored vehicles or anything like that. You know, they, they, I and mean, then it was just a case of them like putting pedal to the metal and just flying down this this kind of corridor that you opened up, and That's it was crazy. like a. Yeah, it, it was this main effort to to open up this artery, basically, to keep the palace fed. But it was it it was it involved almost every, every asset we could get get your hands on because we didn't really have that much out there, you know, just just to keep these bases open um, and, and, and open and supplied. Um, and you know, the the ID threat was very the, the ID threat was real. You know, there was always harassing fire. You know, you had to be. Um, very careful about sticking your head up in the open or anything like that. And for for me as a dismounted soldier, I spent a lot of this time just sitting in the back of the vehicle because it it, it um, you know it, it, it spend a lot of these operations um, 
sitting in sitting in the back of the vehicle, sitting in the middle of the road, uh, because you're you're you might be there, you might be there six, seven, eight hours, you know, parked up, holding this sleeve open, um, and then uh, you know, at any time it could start popping off, and I'd, I'd have the radio on in the back, and I, you, you can hear the contact reports coming up and down the front chain. Obviously, you can ha- kind of like hear like the clatter, you know, the machine guns, my infantry motors going off, an RPG going off here and there. And it's just kind of just popping up, just popping off and up and down. Um, and then the logistics would go in and do their thing and they'd get out and then we'd start pulling backwards and you'd, you'd go back and, you know, in a couple of days later, you need to go back and do it again to, to keep these places open. And um, it really was just like, it's just like a totally untenable situation. And it, even going in there, knowing that it was kind of, that it was bad that summer, I was surprised to see just how, um, how difficult it was for us to operate there and how out on a limb we were. Uh, and Afghanistan was dominating the news at the time because that is the, you know, when it was like, um, when we kind of the British, like there's their second summer in Helmand province. Uh, and there wasn't really anything about Iraq on the news and things. I, and um, so it came to actually go out there and see it. You didn't have to be like a master tactician to understand that, like, this isn't a very good fucking position that we're in right now. <laughs> and, and, guess if you could kind of expound upon something, too, and, and something that I thought was very interesting about you guys being over there. And I remember because it was before I went over to Iraq, but I remember seeing you guys, um, you know, the bases weren't safe either, exactly, because you guys were taking you know, large amounts of mortars. And, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember one one particular camp in Basra taking like 105 or 110 mortar rounds in a single day. Yeah, that sounds about right for Basra Palace. Like that place got... So one, one of our companies was based out of there. Um, and they, they, they were there with the rifles. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the rifles, like... It's one of these... Um, Units again, you know, I talk talk about history and tradition and stuff like that. And the rifles got a very, very proud tradition, and we I, we were with some of the battalions in Iraq, some in Afghanistan, worked alongside them. They're they're fucking they're awesome. So if there's any rifles listeners out there, then props to you guys. But um, it was you, you know they, you couldn't you couldn't be out like you you didn't you did not go outside unless you needed to be outside. Um, it was always in hard cover, helmet and body armor on most of the time. And when you turned up, your first time I turned up at Basel Palace, you know, you stick your head out the back of the truck and you just see the mortar strike marks everywhere. Like, they were, they were fucking everywhere. And when you were moved outside, if you, if we, you, you, you didn't want to be outside, you didn't want to spend the time there. So if you're going from building to building, you, you, it's, you're in your best interest to fucking run. Because obviously the thing with mortars is they don't always <laughs> give you a lot of time. Yeah, and then there was, there was certain little sections there as well, which were kind of like overlooked by small arms fire. So... Again, you didn't didn't do to dawdle. You just kind of moved your ass and got across those spaces. Um, one of my friends had a very lucky escaping in, in Basra Palace. He had a because the, the the engineers built the place up so there was like a lot of Hesco uh, Hesco bastions for rat runs and things like that. Um, the people to go into. So if you know if a blast went off, it was um, you know it would only take like a certain area of the rat run rather than dissipating over like the larger area. Um, and one of my friends, he was walking to the uh, the the what we what we call a scarf house, which is a chow hall, um, and he he had one line behind him, and he was on his own, and it fucked up both the back of his legs, and he just managed to uh, to kind of like crawl his way into the scarf house before, um, you know, kind of just drop into the floor. He'd uh, 
uh, it severed his uh, it severed his femoral artery. Uh, but he wow. managed to like yeah he managed to drag himself into the scoff house in time to um, um, you know to get that treatment because he, you know if he'd, <clears throat> if he'd have been another if he had had another three, 30 yards to go or whatever he might not have made it he might have just bled out on his own. So that was something else that we did there as well was a buddy buddy system of like you going around anywhere there you go out um, you go out on your own but. I remember when I first got there, I, um, uh, when I first got out of the it's like, it kind of like that realization of like bad shit can happen to you just out of bad luck. Um, you know, there was a couple of guys who had literally, you know, they, they'd been sitting in the HESCO during a mortar attack and a mortar round had just come down and landed in one of the guy's laps. And there was, wow. and it was like, it was like, oh fuck, it's really, you know, it's, it, 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 there's something fucking scary about mortars. They're, they're a fucking yeah. horrible little evil thing. Um, and yeah, Basel Palace was hammered in that way. Um, and then at the at the airbase, it was more of a uh, it's more of a rocket thing. So they'd have they have the one hundred seven millimeter rockets. Um, mm. Sometimes it was I think it's one twenty. It was it two two forties. I think they had one, but they were more rare. And when those things came over, that did sound that this that sounded like a it did sound like a jet coming over your head. Like those oh. things were fucking big. Um, but you could have got like and there were a lot of rocket attacks, but. Um, the thing with the rocket attacks is like the base is a large area so and the the base is a pretty large area and you know it'd be quite like some you might be pulling guard on one end of the base and the rockets you know attack so in theory the rockets are landing on the base but they could be like fucking five well not five kilometers but like a few kilometers away you know right um and it kind of it kind of got funny to see like how the the overreaction that like some of the people on the base would have to that um and that, that definitely started. You could definitely pick out the people who went into the city as opposed to those that stayed on the camp. Because, really, <laughs> like, you know, if it's not landing within 100 meters of you, really, then who cares? So, but I, um, I, I, think I, told, I think I told you this, too. I did, I did have a 107 we'll go through my accommodation yeah, yeah. on my first tour. <laughs> yeah. And, um, it went through your housing. <laughs> so, I mean, they can hit. They can, yeah, they can yeah. fucking they can hit the, the, the right place or the wrong place. Uh, and I've still got, I, yeah, I've still got that rocket back home now. It's um, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of my kind of quirky little possessions. That if like uh, if I ever have a chick come over, I'm sure she's looking at like this. What's this like fucking green tubing? <laughs> it's not. Sad, but it's sorry. also a cool story you can tell her. So hopefully that wins her over. You know, like, yeah. I get rocketed once. When I woo her. <laughs> um, didn't, didn't, yeah, you, but, didn't you come back to that though? Wasn't your place shredded when you came back? Pretty much, or yeah, um, it was one of those days where it, like it actually turned out that me doing as I was told actually paid off and saved my life because I was given the night off patrol. Um, so I was settling in for some, uh, all right, let's be honest, porn, probably. <laughs> um, well, what does a, what does a soldier do when he gets the night off patrol and, the, and, the, and his room to himself? Let's be honest, boys. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I kind of, I was, sat, I was just sat there and I'm a usual little spot on the bed. Um, I watch, I was watching some like Simpsons and shit and this, one of the other platoon sergeants came in and, uh, he was like. Not not while I was watching porn. I like, yeah, he sent a point. <laughs> um, and uh, he was like, "Come on, you got to give us hands, fucking these villainy sandbags." Blah, blah, blah. And I wasn't very happy about that because the whole point of me, if I if I'd have known I was going to be filling sandbags, I'd have gone on the fucking patrol. And um, anyway, I, I bitched and I moaned, and I did as I was told in the end. And uh, a couple of minutes later, the uh, the sirens went off, and um, that's where I, 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 any of you, if anyone's listening to this, but like a, a veteran of like kind of Iraq, so that I'm, I'm the more alarm sound 
is something that like is it's because it's not something you ever really hear otherwise unless you unless you happen to come across an old video but hearing that mortal alarm go up like if you, if you go onto youtube and like look it up and you hear that mortal alarm that's a very evocative uh, evocative sound oh yeah um, I remember and um and i um yeah so the the alarm went off and this um and here's the other thing as well like like so this guy who came and told me this he was from a different platoon and i fucking hated this guy hated him and and that's one thing that i'll be honest about as well people like i served along some of the, along some of the best people who you know ever walked the face of the earth and I also served a bunch of, alongside a bunch of guys who were fucking assholes. I hate them, <laughs> like, and, that, and that's just that, that's just all part of the thing, you know. It's like you do your job for each other, you die for each other. But like, I quite happy to never see some of those fuckers again. And he was one of them. <laughs> and he came he came over telling me my room had been shredded, and I thought he was just trying to get a rise out of me. And I went back to the room, and I saw that it was indeed shredded, and, <laughs> and that where I where I'd been sitting a couple of minutes before, there was a giant big hole through the wall, um, which oh, would have t- which would have taken the top half of me off. So. Wow. wow. Yeah, hooray for sandbag feeling. <laughs> wow. So, guys, you know, you, uh, that was obviously unique. And, and some of the things, some of the frustrations you talked about, though, were kind of brought on by your own, gore- own government, correct? Like some of those rules of engagement. And, you know, I mean, American soldiers talk about it all the time, but I don't think they have any idea how tight rules of engagement really can be. So, so can you talk a little bit about that, that dynamic of what you were facing and, and really why it was, uh, you know, it was a tough battle already, but obviously the handcuffs made things a little tougher. Yeah. I mean, what I'd say first as well is I understand that, you know, we went into these places to, to do a job and there's a very fine line between, you know, being able to take the fight to the enemy and obliterating the town of the people that you've come to, um, that you've come to help. So I, I, I get, I, I do think that it's like, a, it's a very hard job imposing rules of engagement. It's very fucking hard. Um, and there's always going to be an upside and a downside to whichever way you go about it. Um, what I think was the problem with us was that we had a lot of carryover from Northern Ireland where British troops had patrolled British streets and for obvious reasons, the rules of engagement there were super strict. Uh, and I, if, I feel like that bled over into Iraq. Uh, and it, it bled over in a lot of ways as well, to be honest. It bled over in some of the ways we conducted operations where it was like, um, and I, I, it, it was a case of, oh, well, this is how we did it in Northern Ireland. Well, this isn't fucking Northern Ireland. This is Iraq. It's a different fucking war zone. Um, and I think there was the, um, I, I think that hindered us in some ways as well. Like there was some, definitely, oh, oh, there was some things to be gained from it. But I, I think it held us back in the way of, we thought, well, this is how we did things in Northern Ireland. So this is how we do it here. And, you know, to just, uh, Northern Ireland was never, like, was, was well, not in recently, like a, a full-blown insurgency like it was in Iraq. And the rules of engagement we had basically boiled down to, you know, in imminent threat to life. So if he's got an RPG over his shoulder and he's 300 yards away and he's not pointing it at you, there's nothing you can do. Wow. Um, Jeez. Now, I'm pretty sure not everyone was like, I, I just had this image in my head of me pulling the trigger and going to prison for, you know, killing the wrong person or, you know, something. Uh, and there, there, uh, there has been, and this is like um, something that I'm, you know, I'm really glad to see that the government has actually cracked down on. 
but there's been, you know, the ambulance ch- ta- uh, chasing lawyers. Of, and this is Br- British lawyers too as well. These aren't, these aren't Iraqis, British lawyers who find Iraqi families to make, um, and it's, but they've basically all proven to be like egregious claims against British soldiers. Um, wow. And these guys get dragged through, these guys get dragged through the courts. There's been families, there's been, because there's, there's been families who literally, their court cases have been going for years, but they just drag them through the courts on total, like, totally spurious bullshit allegations uh the guys have got to pay for their own fucking costs and all that stuff it's yeah it's, it's fucking terrible. disgusting it's it's yeah. ruined families uh, it's it's ruined families and it's it's been very um it's not hushed up but it's not being publicized um but yes to be fair the government did start stepping in and have taken action against these against these firms that were basically just using loopholes in the law to fucking make money because they were they um they you know they were making like they were making a lot of money out of it and you know, the soldiers weren't getting the help that they needed in defending themselves. And I'd heard about things like that happening in Northern Ireland. And, and there are terrible instances where stuff will happen where, like, look, at the end of the day, we're soldiers, we should operate by, I think, one, what separates us from, you know, fucking other parts of the world is that we do have a code of conduct. And we do, you know, I think, you know, 99.9% of the time, our militaries handle themselves with, in difficult situations, with, you know, we've, we 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 really do have a high moral. Uh, you know, we we do hold high. Sorry, hold high moral high ground, um, and I think that's important that we always do that. Um, however, it's it's um, it's it's not fair to place a, a young eighteen-year-old soldier in a position where he's more scared about what's going to happen if he pulls the trigger rather than if he doesn't. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I, I always felt like it was a bit of a, a kind of like a betrayal to the guys on, on the ground. Like we, we'd have, I was, ta- I told him this one that the, you know, the I star would see trucks, you know, like the old Hilux full of armed guys coming towards the convoy. Everyone knows what they're coming for. They're not going fucking shopping. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, but there's nothing that can be done. And they cannot be engaged because, they are not an imminent threat to life. Yeah, that's just so. So let so let yeah, so let's just wait for them to get inside the buildings and stuff. And um, so we used to have Apaches fly top cover for us, but we'd get we'd get the American Apaches because the American Apaches had different rules of engagement to us. Right. So they 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 did have free rules of engagement. Um, you know, but I mean, it's um, we we go out onto some of the bigger operations that we go onto. We would have, um, you know, like prelim- we, we'd have, we'd have, you know, your fires in there for you've got. OK, so there's certain buildings that are quite regularly used as firing points or enemy forming up, all those kind of things. And, and you'd have there. We had uh, 155 millimeter guns uh, for I think they were they, they were there for a while. And then there was also I think there was one or five guns there for a while. You know, these are fucking artillery pieces and they've got fires good to go. For if, if if everything gets fucking really tasty, that they can start putting those down. You've got Apaches above you. Like I said, you've got a squad. You've got main battle tanks, and and, and these, you know, and um, you're losing guys on it. We were like, like you know, a weekly basis. Like it was very fucking dangerous. And most of the time, you're not in the city, other than those like small locations that they were holding onto. But if you actually launch an op, the chances of taking casualties was very high. Um, and you've got all this going on. Everything says this is a fucking war zone. And then your rules of engagement 
were developed for patrolling the streets in Northern Ireland. Right. You know, with when you know, with basically residential, which is which is a residential neighborhood in the UK, when, right. it, when it was boiled down to it. Right, and um, I, I think you know what ends up happening over at least over a period of time is that the the, the enemy starts to understand that the rules oh, yeah. kind of tie mm-hmm. your hands behind your back and they use it against you guys. Absolutely, and, and to me, that's just like a fucking crime in itself. I mean, John, you know, how many guys got killed? Uh, you know, they, they see something coming and they're like, oh, well, we can't do anything. And then, you know, a guy yeah, that's second that hesitation. Contact. Yeah. Yeah. Just and then, John, you're John, you're talking about starting up. John, one of the points you're making was uh, also an issue where it's not only an issue in, in Iraq. Of course, that was a big issue, but also in Afghanistan, because I yeah. remember, you know, I'm sure you heard some of those same stories, guys, but the Taliban was getting so accustomed to our rules of engagement over there. Yeah. That they would actually take firing points up. They'd fire a few rounds off, and then they step out of that house and then become Farmer John again. Yeah, and they run over to a new firing point, pick up weapon, and start firing at you from a different logistical point. So, like, yeah. they understand very well. And not all these guys are obviously that smart, like the Taliban, but th- they're smart enough to understand, you know, over a period of time that hey. These rules of engagement, like this, is how we beat them. I mean, that's no, the dude, these, these guys know this, and they they will know the difference between American units and British units. And right. you know, these these guys, like you know, fucking, they got they got some really good. Like we've got some of the best operators in the world, I believe, in in the UK and the US militaries. These fucking guys were going up against no joke. You know, the the, the reason we the, the insurgency was so bloody isn't because these these guys are amateurs they were fucking somewhere yeah but a lot of them are, are, are fucking pros and they right. they live and breathe to kill fucking coalition soldiers yeah. and they spend all their fucking time doing you know they, they do it like it's a a driving force for some of them with you know it goes beyond just do you know it's not just their job it's like they that's their reason for being and right, right. when you, you do strike operations and find um i mean this is going on a little bit of a tangent from there but i think it's i think it's relevant is that you know, you, you'd see the sketch, you know, you find the sketchbooks they've got. So they're, they're measuring distances between uh, how far are the dismounts going from the vehicle? You know, what is the, what, like, how, how, like, the distance between, um, you know, the, the armor skirt into the, you know, to the track. And, you know, they, they, they started getting so good that they could, um, they, they could embed an IED so that it would come up at the exact right angle to just get under the skirts, like the armored skirts on the side of the warrior and, and come up in underneath it on the right angle to kind of penetrate into the drivers in a compartment. Like these guys are fucking pro, like pro at what they do. Yeah. And like, yeah, you, absolutely. When it comes to rules of engagement, they are going to figure it out and they are going to exploit those. Now I th- we did see some, um, improvement in them towards the end. Basically, you know, everyone realized that this was, you could literally like, I started to be watching a fucking guy digging an IED. But it's because not because it's not an imminent threat to life. Again, nothing could be done about it. Wow. They did. They did start to change those rules up so you could get there'd be like a specific. So if you saw someone digging an ID, um, it, it was then uh, later on in the tour it was possible that they could be engaged. But it, you'd have to be one hundred percent certain that they were digging an ID and not like fucking around on the side of the road or something. Um, right. And they, you know they did start managing to like zap a few people. Like the brigade recce force would go out. Um, you know, they, they do line up points and, um, and, and, um, and, and they, they'd, you know, start to take out a couple of these guys. Then of course they're going to become more cautious about how they're planning them. But right. 
Um, it, and, it was. And for, it, it, for the audience who won't know that, you're talking about like a sniper hide, right? Like sniper team. Yeah, exactly. Like you say, yeah, sniper team. So uh, sometimes they go, and, so, and sometimes they, they take a, the javelin and tank weapons out with them and stuff like that as well. So it's not necessarily just snipers, but, you know, kind of like a, pro, you know, a, proactive, um, a, pro, a proactive way of engaging those ID teams. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, it is... Um, I, I, I was I, I never find my, my weapon once in Iraq, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because my main job was to kind of like scoot out the back of the vehicle as quick as I can, try and find IDs, and then get back in. Um, and as, as a rifleman as well, it's like when you when you've got a like we we, we learn very quickly, and this is this was learned from the the unit that we took over from too. If you were dismounted in Basra, like it's n- nothing good's going to come of it. A lot of guys, a lot of guys were getting shot by single rounds, like uh, you know, single round. I, I don't want to use the term sniper, but again, for like audience, there were some fucking good people out there with a single round, and they were taking guys out fairly regularly. Um, it did, it did not do much good to be outside the vehicle. And then it's just, just you know, just when you've got a um, when you've got a big fucking metal beast that you can sit inside of, you, it's as much as you want to be in there. By the time you've had a few guys shot and stuff, you're thinking, let's just let's just fucking keep the risks down to a minimum. Get out when we fucking have to. Sit in the back when we have to, and let the gunners get let let, let the gunners do their thing. And there's a big old thirty millimeter cannon on that um, on that vehicle. Let's use it. Uh, and and they did like you know we had wagons coming in in our battalion where they would come in guns empty. You know they go through everything that they had in the vehicles. You know there were big firefights out there. Um, but it just it just the, the risk the reward of, of having the guys outside when it wasn't necessary you know it was just it was it was bloody dangerous to be out of the vehicle and you know it was one of those things where you learn through through unfortunately you usually have to go through one or two tragedies before you realize hey let's really think hard about every time every every risk we're going to take let's really think this over um let's let's really think this over and see if it's really worth it and um, yeah, and then the other, and so that was like what part of the reason that there wasn't I wasn't putting many rounds down out there, and the other was that um, I I didn't ever anybody who's ever been in a uh, urban environment will tell you the same thing. Like most of the times that we got shot, I have not got a fucking clue where that came from. Yeah, <laughs> not a clue. And and like so, the chances of me with you know sweat and sand in my eyes. And you know, but, and the oh, one thing I like to point out as well to people is just because I think this is such an important thing when when you're talking about Iraq as well was the heat. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. in the back in the back of our vehicles, it used to get to 70 Celsius. Uh, I don't know what that is in in uh, in Fahrenheit. So Tim, you might have to do some math. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure. But I'm sure I, nobody over here knows what that is. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's technically known as fucking hot. Um, to, to the point where you pa- you basically passed out most of the time you're in the back of the vehicle because like it, it's just it's insanely hot um and you know you, know, you, you, you so you have that heat on top of everything i mean even at nighttime it's still fucking hot but in the days especially i mean it's one of those things that like you can only really go through it when you're a young guy like if you try to do it you probably would die <laughs> um, and, and and that just just putting someone through that experience themselves, you know, was was an ordeal. But yeah, so then so then to say, you know, so you've got that, you've got that. It's disorientating when you're that fucked up and dehydrated. 158 degrees Fahrenheit. There you there go. go. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that people don't really like, you know, when you hear about, you know, going out on a patrol in, in uh, you know, in, in Basra, Iraq, how bad it is with the, the amount of contact you can get into, IEDs, stuff like that. But even if, even if it was a nice place and you weren't getting shot, <laughs> just going out in that heat is like, what the fuck, you know? Well, just putting your kiss on, you, you, you're drenched before you've even taken a step. Yeah, you know, like you, you are, you're, you're drenched. And, and as I've and, played, I've been out. Listen, in there, I, I was an athlete my whole life, John. And you know, so you've been to Texas before, John, of course. And you know, or have you, John? No. Okay, Texas gets really, really damn hot, and San Antonio specifically. Humidity is pretty terrible. The only time I've ever passed out was in Iraq, and I've literally you passed out, sports. pussy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to edit that out? I shouldn't have told that story, <laughs> but I, I played sports. Can't my believe whole I drank you. <laughs> I played sports my whole life, and uh, you know, and I never had a time like that. But I remember literally being on patrol. And uh, going out and like staring up at my guys, and they're like, they're like, Colzak, are you okay? And I was like, what happened? I like didn't know what happened, man. I just remember it being hot as hell. And then next thing I know, I'm looking up at my guys, and it was crazy. So yeah, yeah. I don't think the heat. Like once you're out of that heat, like you literally can't even comprehend. How, like I know it was hot, but it's like I can't really imagine how that felt. You know, back yeah. then. And, yeah, and it's yeah. like. You kind of be like driving along and just, just kind of like pass out, like not pass out as in like the way of like you know like you you know your your big dramatic fainting thing there, big queen, but um, <laughs> not like not not like that, but um, <laughs> you know just in the sense of you you're really just not with it, your mind's just not with it, you're floating right. in and out, right, right. Um, and then the back door would you know you 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 know the, the our, our gunner and commander would maybe see something through the thermal site, they stop the vehicle, the back door cracks open, and like. That, that that drops the temperature just a couple of degrees enough for you to kind of go, oh, 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 wait, something's going on here. And then you hear him you hear him talking on the intercom. That's how a lot of the operations went for us. It's like just kind of like a blur yeah. of like driving around in this oven and occasionally you get out of the oven and then you stumble around, like stumble around <laughs> in the darkness. Yeah, nobody like, knows what the much, going on. Because like, no, it's pretty much like, it's almost like being drunk sometimes. You yeah, know, yeah, you're yeah, that yeah. kind of like fucked up in the heat. It's kind of like being drunk. You stumble around. Um, and then you stumble dangerous. back in. I mean, like, even, like, living oh, yeah. in the city, like, I live in New York, when it gets to, like, 100, 105 oh. degrees, they're giving out heat warnings. Like, people die during the summer over yeah. being, you know, overheated. Like, uh, like that's I mean, a real we, thing. So having a fight we, we, and, and think, you know, in that type of environment is fucking crazy, man. We, we did an operation once where, um, God bless him, this brigadier, he decided that because we were getting, like, because the bow group was getting... Yeah, you know, you know, you know well, I remember this because yeah. he was like, um, hey, you know, the, you know, the, the battalion keeps getting smashed every time it goes into the city uh, and we're going in at night. I've got a great idea. Let's go in the fucking daytime and they'll never know we're coming. <laughs> well, there's a little bit of a problem about that is when you've got an armored battle group rolling out from a city, uh, sorry, from a from a base that's a few miles outside the city. They're going to know you're fucking coming by the time you get to the city. So but the best thing about this was like, so. The other thing as well, that, that meant going out in those, ex, you know, the extreme heat. Because it's hot enough at night. Now it's extreme heat. Um, I, you know, I don't need to tell you, like, the, the fact that by the time we got there, there was fucking IEDs everywhere. 
um because they you know they'd seen this huge convoy of like armed vehicles come in um but the brigadier he didn't make it past the gate of the main gate of the camp because he was like oh he's gonna go out come out on ground for it he got uh, he got heat stroke and had to go to the uh, hospital before he got out the main gate wow. so <laughs> it's like yeah cheers, cheers. great plan cheers. Cheers. guys you've got a you've got an interesting story about that time in bosra and that's that's kind of interesting that you pointed that out john because really it's a it's a very dangerous environment in so many different ways but that yeah. heat really makes it dangerous because you're coming out of the back of the vehicle you're kind of disoriented and then all of a sudden you have to orient yourself to your environment really quickly or let's be honest you could be dead within half a second so yeah. like and stepping off of that back track you know off that back ramp is very interesting yeah, with moment your, with your gear on like forget about it like just try w- walking up a hill you know, play a game of basketball in 110 degree weather and see how quickly you feel like shit, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. And then you've been in a gunfight, like, forget about it. Yeah. Your full kit on and all that stuff. So, but guess I remember one kind of one story you were talking about was uh, finding a particular pile of special gifts waiting for you. Oh. you wanna, yeah, could you, yeah. Could you talk more about that? About that yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I was just going to say, like, one thing for, uh, you know, any anyone anyone that's going to be doing these kind of jobs, like you say, you can be dead in half a second. So something to, something really considers when you get out the back of that truck. If you're doing it in an urban environment, you are like all of a sudden you're having to take into um, you're having to absorb all of this information. Like this, because these are cities as well with high rise buildings and stuff like that. You're coming out the back. You're trying to like instantly right find you trying to find yourself some cover but you're looking for ids but you're looking for points where there might be shooters and you're looking for points that if you know that where, where could you make your next bound to if you come into contact and all of this information you're trying to absorb as you just like you said as you're getting out the back of the, out the ramp or we like we don't have ramps but you know out the back door um you're absorb you're absorbing all that whilst your head you're, whilst your brain is not really working anywhere near its capacity it really is um overwhelming like the amount of like um, if, if you, and, and that's if you, because if you're doing your job well, that's what you want to be doing. You want to be taking into account all the, those things. Obviously, the reality, reality of the situation, a lot of times, is so, you're so fucked, you just don't care, you just get out. Um, but you know, that's what you want to be doing, and it's it's a tough job, and it's definitely something that um, we just, you know, we we did our pre-deployment training in fucking like uh, up, up in like you know like kind of moorland in scotland and places like that you know we didn't so it's we you know, it's, it was that was like a real kind of like uh holy shit there's there's so much information to take in here um but the day you're talking about that Tim, is like yeah that, that was the day with the brigadier thought it would be the bright idea for us to go in the middle of the day um and um you know we, we had uh, some talented tanks out in front of us we were the first we were like lead vehicle lead platoon lead company so basically we're right out in the front of it um, one of the guys in a couple of trucks behind, he, he starts like, he starts standing out the hatch in the back, you know, he's just got his, like, cause it's very tempting. Like you want to get, you want to get yourself out of the turret, uh, not in the turret, sorry, in the, out of the more hatches in the back, you know, which is these like, little hatches that you can come up through and you can take a look around and, you know, ho- hopefully, you know, put some rounds down. Um, but one of the guys, uh, he got, he got like shot. Um, it went through like. Went went through down on, on down one side of his head through the ear and like kind of back out the other side and he survived but that was kind of the point where we were like right nobody else is sticking their head out in daylight now because it's just it's just not worth it and 
you know, there was there there were some people around there who were fucking good shots with a single shot. You know, um, they they were like I said, professionals, um, and and so we knew we had we you know there was that single round threat, um, and there was also the you know the RPGs cooking off here and there, and you know the the, the general contacts ripping up and down the line, um, and the challenger that was with us at the front um, saw this big box on the side of the road, which just basically had IED written all over it, um, you know, big big box sitting on the side of the road, like it was a very poor attempt at them to put it out. Um, you know, okay, no problem. Seen loads of these before. So uh, our boss, he gets on the uh, he, he gets on he gets on the net to talk to the company commander and says that he wants to um, he wants to deny the device. Now, what I, originally uh, originally in Iraq is if you found an IED, you called ATO, um, you know the bomb disposal guys, and they would come and they would either deny them, so they would de- deny the device, or they would you know sometimes they'll take it back because they want to get the forensics and stuff off it. Uh, by 2006, 2007, you just didn't have the resources to do that because there's fucking IEDs everywhere. So um, they started to let the warriors um, deny their own devices. So basically, you would fire, fire your chain gun at the device, um, and then quite often you get a detonation from it. And it it let the battle groups move at faster speed, um, which is obviously important when you're conducting strike arrest ops and stuff like that. Um, and it, it was actually, you know, it was a really good decision um, uh, to allow troops to kind of do that. So, you know, sometimes they did let, they did change the rules to, you know, and fair, you know, fair play to them. But in this occasion, uh, the boss asked for permission, and he was told that because it was the day, because it was daytime and there was like some Iraqi civilians around, and by they weren't around us, put it that way. But I guess they were. Some, I guess they could see people moving around somewhere. Um, we we weren't allowed to fire it. So they said you can only fight it if you can confirm it's an IED. So there's only one way of doing that, and that's obviously to walk up to it. Um, and I was, you know, it's one of those that you, you just had a guy, you know, one of the guys had just been shot in the head, a couple of trucks behind. So I was, straight away, I'm thinking it wasn't the best, like, best and brightest plan in the world to get out of the vehicle <laughs> and go and walk up to the thing, which, like I said, it's, it's, it was so obviously a fucking IED. Um, and I took a quick peek out of the back and there was no cover around. We were in, we were in the road, there's high rise buildings all around. God knows what, you know, God knows where the guy was that fucking just, he just shot our guy, but he's still there somewhere. He's looking around. Um, and, um, you know, the great thing about being a grunt is that, you know, your orders are stupid a bunch of times and you go, oh, fuck it, I've got to do it anyway. <laughs> Which is kind of like, I don't know if it's something to be proud of or, or what, but <laughs> I'm like, I, I honestly think I should give a fuck. Like, it, it, it's, it's, it's insane that you just don't question things like that. When you're a young infantry soldier, you go, oh, well, all right, I'm going to die then. All right, cool. Right, I'm just going to die if I do that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, what's my choices? Do I die or do I look like a pussy? Right, okay, I'll run that. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I kind of like, uh, kind of, I kind of like, um, half kind of like crouched, half crawled my way over to this thing, trying to like find any cover that I could. And then I open up the, uh, open up the top, open up the top of it. And it's full of like artillery shells and, uh, expanding foam. <laughs> and then, yeah. And I, I kind of had this, 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 this moment where I was like, well, actually if I was going to be dead, I'd now be dead. Be- right. Um, because I'm pretty sure that there was some little jihadi fucker in his house, and he would have been frantically fucking hitting the hitting the dial button on the because it was it was, it was obviously it was, remote, it was remote control because you know it was a pop and drop and 
there was there was no building on the right hand side there where the command wire it would be too far for the command wire because the neatest, neatest buildings on that side of the road so definitely someone's doing it and we had electronic countermeasures in our vehicles and without a doubt um that is what stopped that bomb going off wow. um, and i would say what i was I, I, I'd fucking, I'd love there to be a video of that going around somewhere because I bet I look like a right dickhead walking up to that. <laughs> <laughs> you can, I yeah. can picture that like with that like, you know, traditional music in the background. Uh, but dude, you know, here's like, the thing is about, this is, this is like, I mean, this is why as men we get ourselves killed doing stupid things all the time because we're at the, we're at the front. You know, so we've got the convoys drunk out behind us and I know a lot of people are going to be watching you. So it's uh-huh. like, you kind of want to look cool when you're walking into that ID. You don't want to look too. You don't want to look too nervous, you know. And you, you, you're more worried about someone taking the piss and going, "Oh, you shit yourself," than you are about the, the, the ID going up. And that's that's the truth of it. Um, but yeah, then we, um, yeah, I came back into the vehicle. Then we got permission to shoot it. We shot it, and it was a fucking big explosion. Um, you actually have that on your on your profile, don't you? Yes, it's on my yeah. yes, on my Instagram. Uh, John, yeah. it's it's freaking like, like if I had walked out to that and then or seen the explosion before or, or know what that was gonna look like. What, I mean, um, what, what, what is, is it? A picture or it's on no, Instagram. Yeah, it's an actual explosion. So, yeah, we got what, one. Of my, we, my drive, my driver filmed it for years, like because he's got like armored glass in the front there, so mm-hmm. he filmed he he filmed the denial. Um, and then yeah, it was like so. Once our one got done, we got to keep going for the rest of the day. <laughs> What's your that again? Again. What's your Instagram? Is it GRJ? Uh, Instagram is GRJ Books. Okay. So, like, go for Romeo Juliet Books, all one word. Yeah. And, uh, is it uh, a post at, like, the top of your thing? It is pretty. It's, um, I put a post up when I was drunk on Christmas Day, actually. So, I don't know what's at the top one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big I'm, one, John. It's a big one. Oh, okay, okay. I definitely see it. Yeah, uh, yeah it's on the top. Yeah, it's on the top, bro. Yeah, it's on, it's on the oh, top yeah. one there. It's a Fuck big that. firewall. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anybody who's listening to that, please go watch that to get a better idea of like walking up to that. And, yeah. Uh, that's fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You, like, you, you're vaporized within like half a second. I, I've got more footage from that day. So one of our vehicles had a, a vehicle, like a, like a camera mounted on the front of it. And, you know, there's just, it's just these boxes after box after boxes. Some of them set. Some of them get set off by the challengers driving past them, um, which are like the main battle tanks. Um, other ones get denied. Um, but there's a lot of. And again, you know, it's one of those things where the day kind of became a blur because of the heat. I remember at one point in that day, I was standing in the middle of the road waving the convoy on with like you know like a we call them silooms, like the, you know like the loomy sticks. <laughs> and I was standing in the middle of this fucking big open junction, like waving these trucks on. I'm thinking like. The fuck am I doing it? Like, okay, which is this is retarded. I'm standing in the junction. There's fucking contact going on everywhere, and I'm standing here with it, like literally a hey, shoot me in the face stick. Just <laughs> wave on, wave on things. Like, like and that's pretty much the only thing I remember from the back half of that day because it just again it was just so fucking hot. Uh, and the only other thing I remember that day actually of you know was, you know, you go out on these operations. They're long fucking operations. Um, you need a piss. You need a shit. You're not getting out of the vehicle to do it. Uh, um, so we had like these, um, brown paper bags that, uh, we, you know, we'd get like a few little rations to take out in like some, you know, Mars bars and that kind of shit. Like obviously stuff that just liquefies as soon as you get out in the desert. Um, and one of our drivers, uh, he, he kind of like, he, he ran around to the back of the vehicle, jumped in and he took shit in, you know, and this is the stuff that should be in the movies. 
is a bunch of guys in, in the, was it 158 degree Celsius, 158 degree heat, cramped in this cramped in this space in the back as one of the guys is shitting into a brown paper bag. <laughs> and like, you, you know, it's, uh, that, that, I mean, and that is, that's, that's operation. And then he threw the bag out, he threw the bag out through the mole hatch and some of it came out and hit one of the guys in the face. <laughs> But that's, yeah, that is the glamorous life of the infantry soldier. I feel like that's kind of metaphoric in a lot of ways, you know. For yeah. Like what we're with. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, one of those things in the summer, though, and I'm, like, in in the summer, you just drinking water, drinking water, drinking water, and you don't piss. <laughs> like that's the it's a scary thing about it. You can go a whole operation without needing to piss, and you're like constantly sipping away on the water. Um, you know, we, we just, used to, just coming out of your fucking pores, man. Yeah, and we 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 take boxes out. We take boxes of frozen. We had like a, you know, like a, a containers, like freezer containers, and we we take um, the frozen balls out, and we'd stuff them down about the armor and stuff. It was like a, like kind of like a makeshift kind of like a cooling thing. But you know, after a few hours, all the water's gone to you know fucking high temperatures, and um, at times they experimented with some of the guys got given like these new things of body armor that had like fucking fans in them and shit it's absolutely like like you know it's, it's hard enough to move out there as it is and you literally walking around with like big fucking office fans strapped to your armpit right like, it's pretty it's pretty funny like now now the kit's got pretty good like the kit honestly over the last you know yeah you know, i say i was on all fucks i say this but um the kit at first wasn't good like and they were coming out with all these experimentations and and things like that and now with the, some of the kit now is so fucking good um but like, you know, I just, I just, just to throw it back to something we were talking about earlier, when we, with the, um, the, um, you know, how how different the army became, you know, when when it was, you know, peacetime army to wartime army. I, we, I didn't know what a fucking tourniquet was until, quite, you know, a few years into the military. Like tourniquets were not a thing. Wow. You know, and and it's little things like that now that we just take for granted. Right. Like, uh, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna get real nerdy on you. I think. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the the uh, the kind of times in modern history where tourniquet use was like kind of became a regular thing. I could be wrong, but I, I believe that's what I remember from the documentary I watched. And um, well, and also I the mean, casualty collection point, uh, I think was yeah. also kind of. Uh, I mean, it just it just seems insane to me now how tourniquets were never a thing that we had in our that yeah. we had. Yeah, like it yeah. seems like such a fucking obvious thing. I. Yeah. Um, I, I, it, it's kind of my mind blowing. Like, obviously, like, um, unfortunately, the more casualties you take, the more practice you have, the more streamlined things become. That's yeah. one of those things you just have to go through that process. But something as simple as like, hey, maybe our guy should have a tourniquet. <laughs> like, you're like, yeah, you know what I mean? You know, it's funny uh, when I when I um I recorded with uh, Paul Together. He um when he when he was attacked by the shark. They didn't have any tourniquets on the on the boat or uh, oh yeah yeah he, he was telling me he had to have the guy pinch it off yeah like the, the dude literally had his finger in his leg like yeah you know I, I'm, I, wow. I'm sure with like with wounds that are that bad you, you need like multiple tourniquets but um you know at this point we we it should be just like a common thing you know like um, the, the, the 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 kind of backwards ass reason I, I always uh, got told about it and, and Paul agreed with me on this one um it's about one of the only things I do remember from our conversation the other night. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, um, like, 
the, the reason was, oh, well, if you put a tourniquet on and you weren't supposed to, you can damage the limb. Oh, yeah. so let's just let yeah. everyone bleed out instead. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, like, sense. yeah, I know it's fucking backwards ass logic, but like, look, but it, that that helps way, and it took a bunch of guys dying for them to realize that that was fucking retarded, yeah. and, and that, you know, you know, unfortunately, that you know, that's that's the case. You know, there's a lot, uh, but you know, when yes, yeah, this um, one one of the guys who was in there, uh, he's in the, like the company that we took over from Afghanistan, and, um, the the turret got blown off his warrior, and like. You know, the, t- the toilet got like sent flying through the air and he was in it uh and he's he got out and he's walking around and then he co- you know he collapsed sometime later um and the 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 you know the medical emergency um response team came in picked him up on the chinook and um operated on him whilst he was on the chinook basically like fucking took his spleen out and shit while he was on the fucking chinook and and you know that that like that level of surgery on a fucking you know, on a helicopter is just, it's insane. And it's incredible how far our, um, medically wise we've come. And now even like the lowest grunt has like better knowledge than like, you know, we, we could have ever had before. And I think part of that is complacency on our, I think before we were very complacent about first aid and that kind of stuff. And it took the, you know, it took, you know, a lot of casualties, well, not a lot of casualties, but it took, starting to suffer casualties to kind of shake us out of that complacency um and, and for us to really put and thing and there's you know there's um when you look at the way that we it's, and it's all kind of tied into the same thing as uh, just the level of training in general now you get these realistic scenarios where you've got the you know you can have sim munition and uh, and um you know, amputees coming in, volunt- you know, these amputees coming in. So it's with a, they've got the, you know, the realistic like blood spurting everywhere. And um, I know, I know certain places you do in the live tissue training and yeah. it's for, for that stuff, how far that stuff has come on in like the, you know, the last like decades or so is, is, is phenomenal. And are you, are you guys using the T triple C system? Or? But, um, what's up? Okay, I guess not. So, okay, so. Although, there's been a few quite a few beers since I got out of the military, I dare say them. It could have been in a brain cell that got knocked off. I'm not going to speak for everyone else and say everyone else is as ignorant as me. That's just my view. <laughs> so, did you guys have like a. Um, like a system, like did you have it? Like you know, do you call it a certain system of the training, or are you just like being efficient on bleeding control and like trying to get used? So yeah, so I and I kind of saw it evolve as we went through because like someone at first joined, uh, it was like, um, you know, it was no tourniquets or anything like that. You know, it was basically you had a, like a battle dressing, and with the battle dressings we had, we first had. Were like the old school, like Suez Crisis, like these things. You know, they weren't like the uh, the ones that the devil, you know, that you've got now with like the hooks and you can get the tension on there. It wasn't anything like that. It was like a fucking pile of cotton wool with a bit of string on it. You know, <laughs> it's, I, I, like, um, and then, um, I mean, the, the main thing, and it's it's always been the biggest kill is people bleeding out. So that's always been our priority going into that. But then, um, it would you know, it's it's just. The, the thing is, infantry soldiers, as well, it's like, you're, you're not there to be a medic. And I found there's a difference between trying to teach people to be a medic and trying to teach someone to just not die in two minutes, right. which is basically what they, what, you know, what we're there for. Right? 
you're gonna do, you're gonna have we we have, uh, we had like um, uh, medics attached to us. So you tell, so and, and they you know they're like fully qualified medics and stuff. And right. your job is your job as an infantry soldier is to stop someone you know just keep that person alive long enough for them to get to it. Um, and before you go on deployment, you'd have a um, it's like a five day team medic course where they teach people a, a few more little advanced things. So we had like Hemcon and Quick Clot, and, and apparently that stuff's not around anymore. So again, you know things are just moving so fast, but. You get taught how to use those, and it, but basically, what it all boils down to is, um, you know, stopping someone fucking bleeding to death initially or die initially, and then getting them packaged package for Katibak, uh, which is what we call. I think you guys call it Medivac, right? Yeah, exactly. But then yeah. it's the same system. The NATO, the, the nine liners, and all that is pretty, pretty similar. Right. We're saying a similar way of death. You know, you, you have. Um, um, I think when, I think when we were there, we was called T ones, but then I think we switched to P ones, but. You know, it's, but it's 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 a pretty much standard. You know, it's a standard kind of triage and casualty evacuation thing across NATO. So it's, I imagine there's there's quite a lot of um, I imagine there's quite a lot of crossover there. Hey guys, I, I wanted to um, hit up on some, make sure we hit on something in Basra, and uh, and that was you know, if, I don't know if you kind of want to get into this, but you know, some of the situations, some of the tougher situations over there, as far as some kind of you know deals and workings that the government had going on that you guys weren't necessarily privy to and then found out about later so i don't know if you wanted to get into that at all or talk about Fuck yeah let's get political (laughs) (laughs) but uh there was one story i remember in particular that you mentioned that was pretty frustrating uh and that's an understatement obviously yeah i mean just to give it some context, so when I was in there, two thousand and six, I wasn't with the strike. I wasn't with the strike operation, like the, the maneuver sport bar group, who were going in and doing these, you know, basically doing the things like just like the American soldiers and Marines be doing. You know, you go in and doing operations that a few years ago would have been uh, special forces operations, and just sheer volume of targets just meant that this is this is stuff that you know ordinary infantry battalions are you know doing their day to day. And going into places like, um, you know, so like kind of like Sada City, there's an area in Basra called the Shia Flats. And it's one of those places where it's like you go in the Shia Flats, you know, it's going to kick off. Right. It's not going to be like, oh, yeah, today we'll go there. Well, maybe something will happen. It's like, right, it's going to fucking it's going to go noisy and it's going to go noisy fast. Um, And that's where these fuckers live. And that's where guys had to go in and guys Guys are getting, you know, guys are losing their lives to apprehend these people. Guys are, you know, like losing, like, they're lo- like you go on these fucking operations, I say, it, it was fucking dangerous. Like, you you knew there was a very good chance on all those operations that somebody is going to die in, uh, on an operation. That that was how it was. That was the reality of the situation. And you do it because you believe in what you're doing, because you, you're a fucking soldier and you, you, do, you believe that you're, there's a good reason behind what you're doing. And... Um, so there was the, the battalion who was there before us. They, you know, they suffered a lot to, to get hold of these people. Um, we, we, you know, we took casualties in our own battalion. Um, so did the other, like the other kind of member units of our battle group. Um, and you know, we end up with a bunch of these, uh, people in custody and these, these are people who are responsible for, um, if not actual causing then the planning of, the death and you know death and maiming of coalition troops, um, you know, and I mean, 
he's a he's a fucking he's a fucking enemy basically mm-hmm. and um they're, they're a fucking enemy and they're not an enemy that plays by rules and you know and it was a it was a high cost to get them to to get them off the fucking streets and it was a high cost to take them and i think that the way when i think that the way that coalition troops went after um and what we went on the you know that we went aggressive and that you know you we had this high tempo of operations and and fucking you know like it's it, there's a lot to be said for um you know be being on the you know being the aggressive being on the front foot and i think the i think it's fucking cool to think that these fuckers were going to bed worried about who was going to come and get them in a night you know right and, and that they had to keep changing houses and they couldn't have a nice lifestyle and i i feel like we had the um, in uh, in that sense of things, if we if we we had to we had the right uh, we had definitely had the right idea going on. Then we had the right impetus, and um, it makes you feel good as a soldier when you are taking the fight to somebody else. Like there's no like it's fucking demoralizing to just walk around waiting to get a hit an ID, you know. It, but right. when you know, but when you know that you can go in there and get after those people who have been doing it, or be a, if, even if you're not the one going into the house to be a part of that operation of hey. You know these fuckers that keep trying to blow us up? Well, we're going to go and fuck their night up. And like when you see them coming out of the houses and they've pissed their pants and stuff like that, you're like, yeah, you know what? Fuck you. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You feel pretty fucking badass right now. And look, look at you in your fucking piss stained pants. Like, and, and, and it's great. And, it, and, and as a soldier, that is, that's what you want to be fucking doing. Now, what, what happened was, um, you know, I mentioned the situation in Basra. So you had these outposts which were fucking under they were under siege no you know no two ways about it um and the we we began a series of operations to close down these um to close down these locations so that we could um basically concentrate the effort on the outside of the city now that didn't sit very well with us in the first place because we're thinking hang on why are we scaling back why are we drawing down here when the fight this the fight is like at its most intense it doesn't make any sense we're seeding like we're seeding the ground um so even as like a like as a grunt you can kind of see that this is like hang on this doesn't really make any sense it's like we're all we're we're struggling to get across the city now because we can't project power onto it um and now we're going to close places but you know we went ahead with these missions we started closing down one base after another and then it got to the operation to close down Basra Palace, which was the place that was, like Tim said, you know, got was getting. I think it was one of the, of the highly attacked places in Iraq in, in, in summer of two thousand and seven. I mean, that's Iraq in summer two thousand and seven, which was fucking going crazy everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were expecting a big fucking fight to close this place down. So these because these places get attacked day in day out anyway. So they thought they're not going to let us come in. We're gonna, they're gonna, you know, they they're gonna be. They're, they're going to be fucking buzzed because they're going to see us leaving. They're going to want to come on and really make it feel like they made us leave. You know, and they're not going to just let us come in and out. And we, we, when we planned for these operations, you know, we were we were expecting, you know, we were expecting casualties. We were expecting it to be a hard fight. We thought we were really going to have to like fight our way in and out. Anyway, the operations they came and they went, and nothing nothing happened. It was like weird. There wasn't a single shot fired or anything like that. Um. And the longest short of it is that the um, I can't, I'm not, I don't know exactly who it was. I don't know what level government, what branch government, anything like that. But basically, an accommodation was uh, was made with the Jay Shah uh, the Jay Shamadi to um, basically, hey, don't fuck around with us. We're going to come up. We're going to get. We're going to come in. We're going to pack our bags. We're going to go. Um, 
but like in return, you know, you guys don't shoot at us. Uh, and that's kind of basically what happened. Like they actually picketed the route out of the Basel Palace. They, um, the, um, that, cause there's different militias there. That militia picketed the route because they're, they're most, they're, they're, they were by far the most pop, uh, powerful one uh, in Basra. Um, and you know, they, they kind of picked it in and we, we went and we went out and, um, from what I've read about it since the Iraqi government were not informed about this accommodation, um, they weren't told about it. The first thing they knew was that we're leaving the fucking sea. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't in the fucking planning. I wasn't in the planning office. I, I was, I have not, I'm not, not a, uh, I'm not the big deal or anyone like that. So I don't know what the ins and outs are. And I'm sure that the people maybe had the best intentions in mind and they were thinking, well, hey, this is how we save troops lives or whatever. Personally, I think it's all a bunch of fucking shit and that we wanted to be, you know, we wanted to continue to take a fight to the enemy. There's no, no fucking, um, no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so that, so, and the thing is as well, is like, as a soldier, you know, you're not fucking stupid. You understand when something like that is happening and we're, we're proud people. And even though it wasn't our decision, that made me feel like a fucking pussy. And they tried to dress it up in the news, like, they, you know, so they had the pictures in the news about like our armored battle group coming out with the flags flying and everything like that. And they tried to dress it up, but it looked all, it looked really pretty and hey, job well done. And it's like, fucking no, not job well done. You know, we want to get, let's let get back in there now. And it, it's a horrible fucking feeling to be, like, it's kind of, I guess, like a boxer getting like pulled out of a fight, you know, his ref really throws, uh, sorry, with his corner throws a towel in or something. Uh, except, but I don't think we were, it, we, we weren't, we weren't getting, I don't feel like we were getting beat. Like when, it was a, a very difficult situation that we were in, but we, there's no doubt that we wanted to keep going, keep going, keep going, keep taking the fight to the enemy. Um, what happened next was that they then begin to, as part of the deal, they then begin to release these guys who have been detained. Uh, they get, they, they, they are then, um, um, you know, released and they can go back and, go back to their friends in the militia. And we used to have to pull like the guard duty for, cause they'd open up the back gate of the camp, which opened up onto, there was a, a bridge going over a river. Um, and all these fucking militia dudes would turn up on the, so they're on the other side of the bridge. Um, and again, they've come to see their mate out of jail. So, you know, they're all militia, you know, these are the same people who have been trying to kill you. And uh, there they are. There they are sitting a few hundred meters away, a very nice little target through the, through the iron sights. And you're thinking like, fuck, this is, you think this is some fucking bullshit. Um, and they had, you know, the same, cause we, you know, we didn't have that many troops there. The same guys who have been losing friends to go in and get these people. And now the ones who are having to stand at the fucking gate and hold it open for them as they walk out. And it was sickening. And some of the guys lost their shit. Like they were so angry and, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know what political reason. Maybe it was a good idea. Maybe it wasn't. I, I it didn't. It's never sat well with me. Um, yeah. But I just, I just thought that to have, you know, for a, from a leadership point of view, to make your fucking soldiers eat that shit sandwich of, oh yeah, by the way, all that shit you've been doing for the last six months, all the times, you know, you've been fucking on these operations, all the times you've been scared, all the times you've fucking, you know, been shot and all that kind of stuff. Now you're gonna open the gate for this fuck who's, oh by the way, probably killed some of you or been involved in trying to kill you and your friends, you're going to stand open the gate, lay and walk out. And then they get to the other side of the bridge and then they start doing the old Arabic celebratory fire, um, you know, letting off long bursts. And this celebratory fire seemed to be awfully aimed in the direction of our camp. 
you know? um, and you, you'd hear the rounds cracking in. You could hear them. You'd hear them. You'd hear them coming in. I, I'm, I'm, if I, I, uh, I, I will actually go out on a limb here, and I say some people did get hit by it um, because you know you put a lot of lead up in there. Obviously, it's got coming out somewhere. There were people hit by it wow. in the camp, and the guys who were on the, uh, the on the on the outposts were you know strictly told no, you're not, you cannot engage them. It's um, the salvation fire. And that to me is just like, to be honest, I want to punch him in the fucking face just thinking about it now. Yeah. That's Same. crazy. Yeah. That's crazy, man. I mean, I mean, it gave me, I remember always telling me this story, John, like literally, I mean, all that pride, you know, of being infantryman. And I can see it in him, of course, you know, I mean, you can hear it in his voice, but seeing him, you know, talk about this. I mean, I always, I had such an affinity. I had such, um, I, I loved the British troops when I was over there and I always wanted to get to know them. And, um, there was like this, you know, there's camaraderie there. There's a real like curiosity between us and our fellow, you know, infantry brothers doing the thing over there too. And so I always wanted to know them and I always wanted to get to know them. And so to hear him and to see that, you know, kind of, uh, defeat that they had to take there. In, in, in spite of the fact that they were actually taking that fight to the enemy and winning that battle, I mean, you talk about all the complications of Basra, right? You talk about a city of 1.5 million people, so it's extremely spread out. You've got very limited, um, you know, as was our problem in Afghanistan, they're spread too thin. The British troops were spread too thin. but they, So they're getting into, you know, six, seven, eight-hour firefights in the city, you know, and, and, and risking their necks every damn day. And then to turn around and have to wash those guys. And trust me, I took care of some of these uh, top-level guys. I, uh, you know, we ran convoys of them all the time. And, you know, very often not, you know, just quite honestly, I just wanted to slit their throat and let them bleed out right there. But, I, of course, you know, being a professional, uh, I can't do that. So imagining, like, releasing these guys and then letting them go, I mean, just the, I mean. And one more thing as well is what happened after that. Um, yes, is- please. A couple of Iraqi divisions, basically, once we'd left theater, uh, a couple of Iraqi divisions came down. Um, they came down from, like, the north of the country, or, well, you know, further north of the country, uh, and with some American units. And I think the operation was called Charge of the Knights, which is a pretty fucking badass name for an operation, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, they basically went in, they took the fight to the militias, um, because we, we ceded the city to the militia. This is Muqtad al-Sadr's militia now basically effectively in control of Basra because the the army units there were fucking useless. The police were all fucking militia. Right. Um, so it's basically, we were just like, yeah, yeah, we're done, bye. Um, and then to, to, like, to, to then have somebody else come in and clean up your mess, which was not a mess of your choosing, um, yeah, honestly, I kind of want to just kick the fuck out of someone right now. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, it's, it's fucking yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pretty fucking furious just thinking about it because I just think like, fuck you. We were doing our fucking job, you know. We were doing our fucking job, and now you made us look like a bunch of fucking pussies, and that's definitely not how it was. And you know, because if I if I was one of those American soldiers coming down to believe, I I would have been like fucking British police what the fuck so now we gotta come and clean the MS again like WW2 you know it's like <laughs> but no but like see, I see it's not you know that's how I think and being about being a soldier is about pride it's a huge yeah, part of what we do 
but I can tell you guys, uh, you know, though the initial feeling may have been that way from those guys, uh, we really did. We really did love you guys, and we really did think you were hard chargers, and we really saw you as hard chargers. Well, dude, that's uh, so. that's why all the more reason like to want to live up to that reputation, right. you know. Yeah. Um, so what I'm saying is, uh, even in that instance, I mean, we had we had instances over there where our rules of engagement absolutely obliterated us. You know, just it really just made made us ineffective in that area. So so we get it. And even though we might not have seen that as initial reason, I mean, hearing that now, we understand. You know that you know that's that's unfortunately a part of that kind of a battle, you know, when politicians and bureaucrats get involved, you know, with telling a young man how to conduct warfare, you know? Yeah. And I say, I feel like there was just this crazy disconnect between the, like the real, what situation was and, 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 and how it was perceived at home. And I don't know if that leaked into the, you know, if that was the same way as, and, you know, cause like, dude, at the end of the day, these politicians are shit. Like they only know what they get briefed. You know, right. they're like they're, they're they're not out there, so they don't they only know what the briefing is. So if their briefing is telling them like, hey, you know, um, everything in Iraq is going great, blah blah blah, then that's what they that's what they're seeing. <laughs> you know, they're like, you know, they probably didn't realize. Oh wait a minute, why is this like why 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 we why why do we have all these main battle tanks in Iraq at the moment? Do the Iraqis have armor? No. Okay, why do we need them? Because oh, it's the only thing that can withstand the bombs. Like, and even then they started to penetrate man battle tanks. Like. There just seems to be though this is a disconnect from like the reality of like what was on the ground to how it was perceived back home and how it was you know and how it was then and and, and how that leadership trickled down. John, do we have uh, do we have time to get into Afghanistan? Because <laughs> I really I really want to hear about uh, some of those experiences in Helmand. All right, so I have a question for you. Go. Because what I was thinking is maybe we could do a second podcast and kind of get into Afghanistan. Cause we, we kind of dove into Iraq, I think in a, in a very detailed way. And I, I know that the audience is really going to appreciate it. Cause just listen, you know, me listening to you talk, I really appreciate the perspective that you're giving. Like, you know, that, that isn't like the, uh, you know, like you said, kind of like the news report type of perspective, you know, very on the ground, look at it. So, if you guys don't mind, I wouldn't mind saving that for the next time we have a conversation. Um, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, I'm yeah. fine with that. Because yeah. otherwise, people will be sitting here for four hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a good, good little, good little chat. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, and so, <clears throat> how many tours of Iraq did you do, and how many tours of Afghanistan did you do? I I, I did two in Iraq. Um, my first one was pretty soft tour, um, because uh. I was, I just, I was on the, I was always on the periphery of things and it was a good, it was a good like general learning curve for me really, um, set me well on the second tour. And then I did one tour of Afghanistan, which was July, uh, July, 2009 to, uh, February, 2010. And that was in Helmand? Yeah. Yeah. It was in Helmand. It was in a uh, Well, Muscala, Muscala AO. So I just want to say one thing about Afghanistan. This is not me jumping into a four-hour podcast about Afghanistan. When you were, when you were talking about um, and how in, in Afghanistan they would shoot, kind of put their you know weapon away and you know be a farmer, then run to another spot. There's actually uh, when the uh, when the surge happened, I think it was like what 2010 or 2011. 
I, th- I feel like it was 2010 when because the Marines were starting to like pour in yeah. the Leatherneck one. Yeah. When uh, when we when we were leaving. So when the the U.S. Marines pushed in, uh, there was a HBO film crew that went in with them on on some of their major pushes into some of these oh, places. Cool. And you can actually see that on video. You see the Marines saying, hey, that guy was just shooting at us. And now he's... Oh, well, was... Yeah. And, and John, now, was that the Battle of Marja? Was that the one It, it might have been Marja, yeah. Marja? yeah. Yeah, yeah it might have been Marja. And, yeah. and uh, you, you, you know, they're fighting. They move up. You know, they take a compound. They're fighting. They move up, take another compound. And then you could... Like, they're looking through their scopes. And, and you see that, you know, the cameras, you know, they have, like, you know, high-speed cameras. The cameras zoom in. And then you see the the fighting stops a little bit, and then you'll see like a, a family, like you know, women and children, and one or two guys walking with them, and you can hear the Marines <laughs> saying, "Like we know that guy was just shooting at us, but you know, due to the rules of engagement, we cannot engage them." You know, and um, yeah, it, it's just amazing that you can actually see what you guys were talking about on camera. Well, when when like I was fucking pissed because. Um, Afghanistan looked like it was going to be like, oh shit, like, oh, you know, check this out. Now everyone's getting to drop bombs on everything. And, you know, there's bomb, like, it's just like J-Dam after J-Dam after J-Dam going in. And then as soon as we get, like, just literally a month before we got there, they changed the rules of engagement to, like, basically stop, like, all these fucking J-Dams getting dropped every every time there's a contact. Um, so I was fucking pissed at that because I was looking forward to seeing <laughs> that shit. Um, you know, so where, whereas, like, the, you know, the guys who, who we, we took over from, they, if they got in contact, they, like, you know, they get fired out from fucking compound. They're putting a jade down on the compound. Well, we weren't allowed to do that. The only way you could, you could only get air put on or out to be put onto a compound if you could, uh, if you, if you could like say, hey, yes, this compound is clear of civilians. Well, how the fuck are you supposed to do that? How can you say that? So <laughs> we literally had it. We, we had just one examples. We had, uh, we got contacted one from a compound. You could see the guys popping up and down, you know, shooting us. Then the A-10s turned up. As soon as the A-10s turned up, the, um, the Taliban stopped firing. It's not fucking stupid. No one wants to be on the end of an A-10. And um, <laughs> the A-10s like, yeah, we can see like 10 guys in this compound. And it's like, well, you know, well, let's fucking kill them. It's like, we know it's these guys. We've literally just been watching them get up and showed us. But like, well, well, no, it can't because they're not shooting at you right now. So we would do things like fucking patrol back and forth, like literally walking up and down like ducks in a fucking, in the shooting gallery, trying to get them to open up on us because we're like, <laughs> I, we're like, I'm quite happy to take this risk right now so I can watch his A-10 come in. Like, I'll, risk, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll risk this so I can get the boner of the, the, of the straight camera. Um, but yeah, like everyone knew it was that we knew it was fucking Taliban in the compound. The A-10, uh, the A-10 guys can see them in the compound and these guys are just like, just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then, right, A-10's off station, and then, oh, yeah, fucking, oh, surprise, surprise, guess who's shooting at you again? Yeah, there was a, it's, it's funny, Um, I watched a movie a couple weeks ago on Netflix, and I can't remember the name, but I'll find it for the next time we talk about Afghanistan. And and it was basically a, um, a, a I believe it was based on a true story about a, a Danish uh, infantry unit that was in Afghanistan. They were in contact, and... Uh, they were they were in a gunfight. One one of the guys got hit, like he got shot in the neck, I think, by a sniper. And they called in a, they called an airstrike on this compound where they were getting shot from. And then the uh, the commanding officer, he was there uh, for the fight, and he ended up going through this long court process where he was going to be prosecuted by um, 
uh, you know, the Danish court system for Jesus. Co- committing war crimes. Yeah, it, it's really an interesting movie. I'm, I'm trying to. Was that Armadillo? No, it wasn't. Was it Armadillo? Uh, because that was a Danish documentary where they followed them around in Afghanistan. Danish is badass. I just want to put that on the record. They, we're, they're in Iraq and Afghanistan with us. And there's something pretty fucking cool about seeing a bunch of dudes with big beards, like, yeah, like Vikings. Just Vikings. Yeah. Vi- <laughs> they think yeah, these little vehicles, they have big Vikings, machine guns. All that. Whenever I used to see them, I think, like, yeah, pretty, pretty fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, Tim. They um, I know what you're talking about. I did watch that though, uh, but that, yeah, that's not. A, that was this, a pretty solid one. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. This the one I'm talking about was like an actual movie. Like that was documented. Okay. Like a movie. Um. Gotcha. Yeah. So actually, hmm. I'm going to Europe, and let me see. Like eight days. When am I going to Europe? So in like yeah, in a couple of days. Okay. Sweet, where are you going? I'm going to uh, Iceland and then uh, France. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Dude. Right. Going France, no France. Uh, Paris. Oh, sweet man. Yeah. Um. So it, it should be a good time. But what I would like to do is let's continue this conversation when I get back. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm down. Sounds good to me, man. To be continued. Yeah, so yeah. and I know the audience is gonna hate this, but you know what? So what? Um, <laughs> so are we gonna put this podcast out and then do like a different series, or or how are we gonna? How are you gonna do that? So I'll I'll drop this tomorrow, and okay. then um, when I get back, how long are we gone? I'll be gone for eight days. When I get back, we'll do it again, and we'll just dive into Afghanistan. Oh, sweet. Sweet. Sounds good to me. man. Hey, good talking, you guys. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Cool. It's funny. I still need. I still need to fucking punch some shit though. Now I'm fucking. <laughs> up. I, I don't have a. I don't have a fucking gym membership around this area. So I'm like, where's, where's, where's the dog going? <laughs> hey, are you at that house that you were at when I saw you? Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm. Just, I'm uh, just go out there on the go out there on the terrace and pull like a Rocky, you know, and just like airbox, you know, like <laughs> over the Hollywood Hills. I did. Know? I did try and do some pull ups earlier, dude, but I'm so like. I'm, I'm I'm so destroyed from the weekend that I was like, oh god, it's to kill me. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna accept the fact there's no no trains no no trains getting done today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. awesome. So yeah, and then and then we'll also do like the post military stuff as well. Um, Sounds know, good. That's like Tim's, yes. uh, you know, specialty. So, um, yeah, it was great. It was great. Great having this conversation. Um, you know, yeah, man, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, great, great episode. Um, people gonna yeah, great it. talk. Yeah. Yeah, well, all right, thanks, guys. We'll have a good time in um, in Europe, man. And uh, Tim, I'll speak to you soon. And yeah, just let, yeah, just let me know when it works. All right, thanks, man. All right, I'll tell you guys. Bye. All right, guys.